Section 3 of the Book of Famous Sieges. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Book of Famous Sieges by Tudor Jenks. A Siege in the Earliest Times. Perhaps in a list of sieges, the first that is worthy of attention is that of the Siege of Babylon, which was taken something more than 1300 years before Christ, or more than 200 years before the Siege of Troy, 1184 BC, described by Homer. There is not much certainty in accounts of events going back so far as this, but this account describes the city as having been captured by King Ninus, which is a Greek name for the Assyrian king Tiglathi-Nin, and united with his own city, or country of Nineveh. This great city Babylon had existed since before the dawn of history, and at a later time is said to have been from 40 to 50 miles in circumference, or to cover an area about as great as that covered by Philadelphia today. Within its great double walls, which are declared to have been 300 feet in height and over 80 feet thick, was enclosed an area which consisted, for the most part, of gardens, parks, fields, and orchards. The streets ran at right angles. Outside of the walls was a deep moat, dug when the clay was taken out for the walls themselves. And there were a hundred gates of brass, and 250 towers in the enclosing structure. It was rather a mighty fortress than a wall. The city was built on two sides of a river, and its halves were joined by a movable drawbridge, supported on stone piers. Within the city were great palaces, two at the ends of the bridge, the outsides of which were decorated with coloured bricks, an enormous temple, and other smaller ones, and the river Euphrates, which ran through the city, supplied a reservoir four miles square. The country round about was a great flat plain divided by marshes, rivers, and artificial canals. Most of the travel was in big flatboats. Whether or not the siege of Babylon by Ninus was exactly like all other sieges of these ancient times, we need not inquire. We know enough of the warfare of those days to be able to describe about what must have taken place. But it is probable that in these earliest days the walls of Babylon were nowhere near so high as they became when the city was at its strongest. Had the walls, then, been as high as 300 feet, probably the city could not have been taken by an army like that brought against it under King Ninus. The strongest part of the army which King Ninus led, consisted of a force of horsemen, which, far in advance of the main body of his troops, rode over the level plains in order to protect the rest from surprises, and to give timely warning of the presence of the enemy, in case any outposts of the city should be met with. The coming of these cavalrymen would put to flight all the inhabitants of the country, who, in peaceable times, occupied the fields and villages of clay huts thatched with rushes and branches built here and there along the great network of canals and watercourses that made this plain 
now a desert, one of the most fertile regions of the earth. We may be sure that the Babylonians had posted horsemen of their own, miles from the city, in order that they might have early warning of the coming of the enemy. These outposts would be the first to arrive with news that the enemy's army was at hand. Riding at full speed over the plains, and dashing over the bridges, their horses lashed to the highest effort, they appeared at the bronze gates of the city, gave the password, and carried the warnings to the commanders of the garrisons stationed in the many towers along the Great Wall. Then would be lighted the beacons, that by their light at night, or smoke in the daytime, called the defenders of the city to arms. Hasty orders sent the bodies of archers and slingers to their posts at the broad top of the wall, which was wide enough for a number of chariots to drive abreast along its top. Meantime, following closely after the galloping scouts, came the country people, in much the same manner as some 700 years later, they are described by Macaulay as thronging into the city of Rome when it was threatened by Lars Porsena. A mile around the city, a throng stopped up the ways. A fearful sight it was to see, through two long nights and days. For aged folk on crutches, and women great with child, and mothers sobbing over babes that clung to them and smiled, and sick men born in litters, high on the necks of slaves, and troops of sunburned husbandmen, with reaping hooks and staves, and droves of mules and asses, laden with skins of wine, and endless flocks of goats and sheep, and endless herds of kine, and endless trains of wagons that creaked beneath the weight of corn sacks and of household goods, choked every roaring gate. Although Macaulay's lines refer to a time so many centuries later, there can be no doubt that except that boats were more frequent than wagons, they paint a true picture of the flight of the dark-skinned country folk to the great stronghold of Babylon before the advancing army of Ninus. When at length the enemy are within sight upon the flat plain, the brazen gates are shut fast, the outer drawbridges are drawn up or destroyed, the soldiers stand at their posts behind the breastworks on the edge of the wall, and the siege is begun. Having advanced to a place just out of range of the arrows and stones from the slings, the forces of King Ninus prepare their camp, spreading around the city upon all sides making their campfires, putting up their tents of skins stretched upon branches, and settling themselves for a long siege. At once they begin building a wall of their own to protect their camp from any sudden attack on the part of the Babylonians. They know that there are heavy forces of soldiers behind those enormous walls, and that if the sentinels upon the top of the walls can spy out weak places, in the line of the besiegers, at any moment one of the great gates may be flung open and a column sent out to attack the weak point. If such attacks are made, it is but for the purpose of delaying the work of the besieging army, 
for it is too strong to be put to flight. The Babylonians know that their main strength is in keeping behind their walls and in making the work of the besiegers as difficult and as slow as possible. But though the work may be delayed, it cannot be stopped when the besiegers are so strong. The army outside has brought with it spades and hoes and other tools for digging, and gradually the soft clay and sand is dug out to make a ditch and then piled up into a wall high enough to shelter the soldiers from the arrows and stones that might reach them, even though the range may be a long one. This wall once completed, a more dangerous task must be undertaken. This is the building of a mound. The outside wall is really no more than a protection for the besieging army, making it hard for the Babylonians to deliver attacks against them. The mound is the first means of attack. Having selected some part of the city wall, which seems not so well defended or not so strong as the others, the soldiers of King Ninus bring baskets full of clay, which they empty over the front of their own wall, very much as modern labourers begin the building of a road across a valley. Load after load of the earth is poured over the edge, and gradually, between the two walls, a cross wall is built up, extending from the outer wall and rising higher as it nears that of the city. During this work, there is a fierce battle between the bowmen and the slingers on each side. Large forces of the Babylonians gather upon their own wall opposite the growing mound and discharge their arrows and the stones from the slings against the workmen who are carrying the earth that goes to building the mound. The outsiders, in the same way, do their best to protect their own men and to slay the Babylonians upon the wall. Every step in the building of the way between the two walls makes the danger greater, since, beginning almost out of range, the workers are forced, as the mound lengthens, to encounter a hotter and hotter rain of missiles from the marksmen of the city. Although many of them wear an armour of metal rings or plates sewed to cloth, of quilted garments or of leather, and besides protect themselves behind great wicker and leather shields, which are planted upon the mound as they advance, such a work cannot be carried on without great loss of life, a loss greater outside than within, since the Babylonians have the advantage of fighting from a higher wall, thus shooting downward upon their enemies, and are protected by better fortifications. But owing to the fact that not many archers and slingers can find room at the point on the walls opposite which the mound is being built, the besiegers, by constantly sending reinforcements, are able to carry the mound steadily forward until it actually reaches the wall of the city. They have selected for attack a point midway between two of the great towers along the city wall, so that they may, as far as possible, escape the missiles sent from these. Once having reached the walls, the workers are actually safer than before, since the bowmen and slingers are forced to expose themselves over the edge of the wall in order to fire straight downward, and thus offer themselves as marks for the arrows and stones of the besiegers who shoot from along the mound. Having completed the cross wall between besiegers and besieged, 
there comes the problem of breaking down the city wall, or of climbing over it. Although only a narrow column of men can find footing upon the mound, yet there can be brought against them a force not very much greater. Probably the final attack will take place at night. This can hardly be a surprise, since great fires are kept lighted by the besieged along their own wall. But even the great fires can give but an uncertain light, and the work of the marksman is made less deadly by the flickering flames and the dark shadows. When the column that has been formed for the assault has reached the city wall, the fiercest struggle of all takes place. Great beams of wood, cauldrons of boiling water, flaming pitch, stones, everything that is heavy is brought to the edge of the wall and hurled down upon the soldiers below. Meanwhile, by means of long ladders, beams of wood, bundles of reeds, the mound is raised in height. Though the brave soldiers fighting their way slowly upward lose many of their number, they are reinforced by fresh soldiers as fast as they fall. While the besiegers are thus making good their footing upon the wall, the Babylonians within are building breastworks across their own wall, on each side of the point where the besiegers have gained a foothold, in order to prevent entrance to the city. Along the top of the wall begins a hand-to-hand -hand fight. The besiegers try to clear the defenders from its top, the defenders resisting stoutly every step in advance. But where the besieging army is stronger, and is able to gain complete possession of a large portion of the wall, it is not long before they can tear this down, since it is always easier to destroy than to build up. Having thus broken away into the city, they can more easily destroy any defences that may have been built behind the opening they have made, since these are usually much smaller and weaker than the wall already taken. In this way, entrance to the city is gained, and the breach once made, the enemy once established within the walls, the advantage is upon their side, for the simple reason that they have what is called the interior line of defense, a phrase that requires a word of explanation. Imagine a small body of men attacked by a surrounding crowd. Unless the odds are too great, this central body has the advantage of position, since it has a smaller surface to defend, a smaller distance to go to strengthen a weak point of the force. Suppose, for example, that the forces of King Ninus had broken their way into Babylon and are advancing through a gap in the wall. The force brought against them must surround them in order to stop their advance. They must occupy a wider space and can less easily send more men to any weak point that needs reinforcement. Meanwhile, the attacking party are immensely strengthened by their own bowmen and slingers, who, from the top of the captured wall, can rain missiles down upon the heads of the Babylonians, who are resisting the advance of the besiegers. Nevertheless, there may be many a long and stubborn fight before the city is finally taken, but in these fights there is no great advantage on the part of the citizens against their enemies, and, if the attacking force is more numerous, the breaking open of the wall and the entry of the troops from outside leads sooner or later to the downfall of the city. In battering down walls, 
attacking armies from the very earliest times, as we know from old stone carvings, made great use of the battering ram. This was a long, heavy log, often armed at the head with a heavy metal point, and hung from its middle so that it could be swung forward and backward, delivering at each swing a blow, the force of which depended not only on the weight of the ram, but was often also greatly increased by bodies of soldiers, who lent all their strength to aid the swing of the instrument. Sometimes the rams were hung in a frame that was roofed over and protected at the sides, and these could be pushed forward upon wheels. After the mound had given way for advancing the battering ram, the thickest wall built of small bricks could not long sustain its battering blows. Such was the method of attacking the great cities that grew up in the vast plain where the story of civilized mankind begins. But in the next siege, we shall see that even the little skill shown in taking these cities was not known to the early Greeks and the Trojans. End of section 3. Reading by Liam Young.